0: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And today, do Democrats actually have a chance to hold on to their majorities in the U.S. House and Senate in the midterm elections in 2022? History is not on their side. Since 1946, the average number of seats in the U.S. House of Representatives lost by the president's party in the midterm elections is 46. Projections by my recent guest, David Shore, show that in 2022, if Senate Democrats somehow managed to beat Republicans by a stunning four percentage points, they'd only have a 50-50 chance of holding on to the majority. If they win only 51% of the vote, they'll likely lose a seat and the Senate. But our guest today says that Democrats can give themselves a fighting chance, and maybe more, by employing the right strategy and focusing on the right people and the right places. Colleen Loper is the Senior Director of Political Strategy at way to win an organization founded after the 2016 election to channel more funding from Democratic donors into organizations and campaigns that focus on voters of color. They've raised $165 million, and they recently posted an in-depth analysis called How 2020 Shapes 2022. Colleen, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so
1: much for having me.
0: It's delightful to have you because we're kind of taking a glass half full approach. I know that's weird. We're Democrats. We don't usually do this kind of thing, but let's indulge ourselves. You have a report that I I don't think that the focus of your report is to sort of put a Pollyanna-ish spin on this. I think you guys are very clear-eyed about some of the challenges that the Democratic Party faces going into the midterm elections and beyond. but. You have a very strong point of view based on your analysis about what's the best pathway for Democrats to really give themselves a shot at holding their own. So in your analysis, what was it and what did you find overall at just kind of a high level?
1: Yeah. So I would say that we aim to be realistic and to be data forward, but people oriented. Um, as opposed to Pollyanna, or or too optimistic. I think that we live in the realm of possibility and hard work. And when you look at the possibilities, you can see that there are multiple avenues to winning. It's not just how it's not just winning, it's also how you win and who you center in getting there. And so looking at 2020, one, we, we did move over 165 million dollars and so we needed to really have an understanding of what happened and where did that funding go, how was it used, what was the most effective strategies? And like we needed to understand really what happened and who was engaged and to test our own hypotheses to see where we right or were we wrong? And then we could start to look at 2022. So what we found are really two big things. One is that our core strategy for 2022 and beyond must be about engineering and expanding enthusiasm among the people that won 2020. And those are high potential, multiracial, multigenerational people. And they comprise a critical part of the electorate across the Sun Belt states. They are also in the Rust Belt. So we're unfortunately dealing with with a double threat, though, of some Democrats are leaving the party or, you know, there's an erosion of Democratic support and there is new support and enthusiasm for GOP among voters of color and younger folks. So those are two of the biggest top line findings from.
0: Well, there's a lot in there. That's yeah, I mean, a ton under the surface there. So. First of all, I really appreciate the fact that you guys are taking a rigorous and empirical approach to this, right? Mm -hmm. So much of what everyone does in political campaigns is sort of based on inertia, best practices that we all kind of learned at our grandmothers and grandfathers politically, knee, as we kind of came up in politics. And it may or may not be true. There's an awful Mm -hmm. lot of assertion. So one of the things I really appreciated about your report is that you really are, as you put it, that's an elegant phrase, data forward, I love it. And one of the things that jumped out to me that you found is that there were nearly 41 million voters in the 11 states that you looked at that turned out in all three of the most recent elections, 2016, 2018, and 2020, those really super dependable, they're gonna be their rain or shine voters came out almost exactly in half between Biden and Trump. And it it seems like one of your conclusions is, look, the folks are always showing up. They're not persuadable. We we might as well, as Barney Frank famously said after a town hall in 2010, we might as well have a conversation with a table because it's not really worth talking to them. Now, you alluded a moment ago, though, to a different group, which you called high potential voters, multi-generational voters, voters of color. So what, what are those types of folks? What what are they like? Who are they? And why are they the better opportunity?
1: High potential voters are not yet realizing all of the potential
0: <laughs> of... <laughs> Don't worry, that's not a tautology.
1: Right. And so... We are excited to engage them more often. So high potential voters are people that do not have a strong voting history. They have voted maybe once or twice in the past three cycles. They are non-voters, they are, or they, they might be talked about by others as non-voters or low propensity or as an expansion base. But we really center them because whenever you look at the numbers, I mean, you what you said is right, the people that ha- that more often vote are more codified in their beliefs. And you know, of the 41 million, nearly 41 million people who have a really strong voting history, if you look at the modeling of it, only 5.5 million of them sit in that middle modeling, meaning that they're the independents or the people that you're really looking at. And that's just a minuscule amount of opportunity as opposed to whenever you look at all the people who are not yet registered or people who have only been activated once or twice. And what happens is there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that occurs in political campaigns where we target the people who are already voting because we're like, oh, okay, well, we know that they're going to vote. And so we'll steal a Republican vote by getting them to vote for us. And really it's like two for one. But at the same time, you're then having to steal that vote for each specific race. And every single cycle. So what we want to do is center the people that don't get talked to because it's assumed that they're not going to actually turn out to vote. And we want to talk to them about coming out to vote and what it can do. Unfortunately, it's, you know, also that the people who don't typically vote are voters of color, they're younger voters, they're LGBTQ, they're lower income, and they have so many other barriers that are put in front of them. And so that's one of the reasons that of the folks that we support, a lot of them are working to help dismantle a lot of those systems or, or the systems of barriers so that more low, low propensity or high potential voters can come out in the future. And then, and then you're building on your base. Like if you get somebody who as a whole person is, a, is in agreement with you about your progressive values and they're gonna go and vote up and down the ballot, you just have to come in, you have to be like, oh, okay, well come back, come back and vote. And we're gonna show you what happens when you vote and we're going to make your life better. And then you can continue to come back and vote and it'll be a really good relationship with the high potential voter and the electoral process. And I think at the end of the day, then you're truly building a durable Democratic base and not just trying to steal one vote at a time.
0: Sort of at the risk of maybe being a little too glib in reading this back to you, what I hear you saying is that it's awfully tempting to do what in dodgeball, you know, that great documentary, dodgeball, a true underdog story, would have called a two-for-one switcheroo. If you get someone who used to be with the other side to be with your side, you're taking a vote from the other side. That's how you hurt them. That's how you win. Boy, I'm really quoting a 15-year-old movie an awful lot right now. I'm really dating myself here. So that's, that's awfully tempting. And that's sort of a traditional pathway to win. What you're saying is, again, at the risk of being a little too glib, it's more like Stacey Abrams has been suggesting as a pathway to better long-term success. We need to register people. We need to find them. We need to build a relationship with them. It's a longer-term trajectory, and it's harder. We're not kidding ourselves here, but it's the more productive pathway long-term.
1: The return on investment is is a more durable relationship with, with those voters. And I do think that I don't want to understate... You know persuasion voters or independents because it's a both and at the end of the day we need we need to hold the middle we need to bring people over to our side and we do need some of those two for ones there has been such historic underinvestment in the durable expansion that we are focusing Quite a bit. <laughs> we are. We have a large focus on this expansion and, and uh, of high potential voters because just because nobody else has been doing it, and and campaigns do often prioritize these persuasion voters until the last three weeks, and then it feels transactional for the voter to get prioritized in the last three be- weeks of like, okay, well, you've been talking to that voter. And it's been clear that it's not for me, you've been talking to the middle of the road for so long, and now you want to depend on me to come out. And so I think that there are just some dynamics of how campaigns are run that we're trying to upend with our funding on the independent political
0: side. Let me just put some numbers to this just to give our listeners a sense of scale. I alluded a moment ago to those 41 million who, you know, they split kind of down the middle for Biden and Trump and they're pretty locked in. We're pretty sure they're coming and it's a, it's a tie now then you looked in your modeling and i'm going to i'm going to lean here on the summary that the great journalist ronald brownstein provided in a, a terrific write up he did on your report in the atlantic and here's how he summarized it across the 11 states that you looked at you calculated nearly 13 million 2020 voters participated in just two of the past three elections and they preferred biden 52 to 48%. so what we're saying there is you have these infrequent Voters, the kinds of folks you were talking about, the high potential—you know—we they're they're dem curious, mm-hmm. and we could get them, and they they get a slight edge for Biden. There's another eleven million voters from 2020 who didn't vote in 2018 or 2016, so these are new people getting sucked into the process, or they're young voters. They preferred Biden, fifty-four percent to forty-six percent, and then you've got another 25 million registered voters. They're they're already registered to vote. They just didn't show up in the last three elections and they model as even more democratic leaning. So you add up those numbers, the 25, the 11, the 13. I know we said there'd be no math on this exam, but you get almost exactly equal numbers of voters as that 41 million, actually slightly more that we said before are locked in, they're showing up no matter what and they lean slightly Democratic. So I know I've just thrown a lot of numbers at our listeners. But what I read into that is, you're not saying this is a silver bullet. And you're not saying it's easy. What you're saying is, there are more folks out there that we have good reason to believe they're not a lost cause, we can get them. We just need to do the work.
1: Right. Exactly. And we even know who the best messengers are. We need, We know what the trusted message is. We know that we need to build race, class, solidarity. We just need to make sure that we're funding it. Is it. Like, and, and, and Way to Win is trying to be a center of gravity to make sure that those programs can get funded and that year-round organizing can occur and that those organizations can be as robust as they need to in order to engage these you know, 30 million people across 10 states. And they need more, they need more support. They still need more support.
0: Now, I want to dig a little bit into what you were just saying about, we know the messages to reach these folks, because this is maybe the hottest button discussion going on in democratic circles these days. What I think has fueled it is, the the top line numbers that have come out from a a variety of different analysts and organizations, and they're all kind of telling the same story. For a long time, Democrats have been a, well, it's what Jesse Jackson 40 years ago called a rainbow coalition. It's a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and multi-generational, as you put it, coalition. It's people of color, by which we mean Asian American Pacific Islander, Black, Mm -hmm. Latino. We also mean young voters. And Predominantly, those voters have gone for Democrats, mm-hmm. except the trend lines have not been great in 2020. We saw Latino voters shifting toward Trump from 2016 to 2020 by about eight or nine points. That's not awesome. And the absolute backbone core of the Democratic Party, not just Black voters, but Black women shifting toward Republicans by about two points. Doesn't sound like a lot. But that is your base, and it's not a great news story. So what should we be doing as Democrats in terms of those messages to try to get through to those voters who were starting to bleed in the direction of Republicans?
1: I love this question because we've done some research into it. And what we have found is that It is a multiracial coalition and we need to lean into it. I think often we have a race message or we have a class message. And what we learned is that we need to be better at tying the two together. One of the interesting things that we found in our our retrospective was that folks more often associate, like whenever you ask them, how do you self-identify? They self-identify with class more than their before they associate themselves or say their race, except for black Americans, they were the only racial group that that was different. And I think that just underscores the fact that we need to be able to tie all these things together. We need to be able to talk about our values. We need to be able to actually build a vision that encompasses everybody. And I think that we know how to do it. It's just that we get sucked into these I like as I'm watching Virginia, for example, I feel like we we know that we should be proactive and talking about the vision of what we can build together um, across race, across class, and instead, you know, it's just so easy to get sucked into an anti-Trump message. And granted, you do need some message, some messages that will paint a picture of what will happen without, you know, great democratic leadership. But every if,
0: good story needs a villain.
1: Exactly. And I think that we need to do a little bit more in terms of actually building our vision because next year we have we don't have Biden at the top of the ticket. We don't have a singular person that will be able to effectively share out or, or really represent, I should say, the democratic values. And so we have to actually name them and pass policies that we can point to to say, this is what democracy means. This is what being a Democrat means.
0: Do you think that on that particular issue that that is a more important motivational factor in terms of laying out that kind of a positive vision. This was a, a lot of discussion going into 22 is we need to say what we're for. We can't just say we're against Trump. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, I was kind of joking a second ago but I meant it like every good story does need a villain. Is it more important for Democrats these days to just run against the worst villain we've had in living memory in this country, Donald Trump?
1: I think it all has to get done. I think, I think, (laughs) so to say it's more important, I think that it has to get done in the right proportions too. Let's have some villain. Like let's, 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 let's show what Republicans really stand for and pull back the curtain on what their policies actually mean for people's everyday lives. And let's make sure to show what we are for and what their, what people's lives could look like under our leadership.
0: Well, that makes... A, a reasonable amount of sense to me. <laughs> of course, you know, as you know, and I know the devil's in the details, and then the details tend to get scrambled once they go through. Boy, I'm going to sound like Sarah Palin here, but once they go through the media filter, all bets are off. And, you know, the most explosive, outrageous stuff is what ends up getting covered. And before you know it, we're sucked into the Trump vortex of the day. I want to dig a little bit further into the conversation we were starting a couple of minutes ago about some of the messaging high points that Democrats can pursue, especially to reverse these trend lines that have been turning against Democrats when it comes to Black voters, Latino voters, and some of the problems that Democrats have been having in controlling their message. There has been an awful lot of discussion about the possibility that maybe it's the whole wokeness thing that is killing Democrats. There are certainly some high-level, notable Democrats. James Carville, for one, went on a a big rant a few months back where he's like, it's wokeness. That is what is killing the Democratic Party. And there are some numbers that back that story up. Polling done during the Democratic presidential primary showed that only 46% of Latino voters actually supported a policy like decriminalizing Border crossing. And we also know that when it comes to economic policy, Black voters are not really on board with, I guess, what you could characterize as the most woke, progressive policy positions that some Democrats have been taking in recent years. Things like reparations fall very low on Black voters' economic agenda. They actually tend to veer toward the more conservative. So, what do you make of this whole debate? Wokeness is perception that Democrats are too progressive, too enthralled to forces on the left, part of the problem holding back progress with voters of color and young voters?
1: I don't. I, (laughs) I think that it indicates that progressives are particularly good at creating earworms and that they have some messages and some policies that are really going to excite some people and maybe polarize some others and i think it also points to the fact that the larger democratic party has a problem with this message because it, the, the deep on the police was so polarizing and there was never a salient other option of like how to talk about it and i think that's a failure of the the big tent. I think that's that's a failure of all of us, like not being able to say, okay, well, you know, if that's a polarizing concept, well, here is this one that is more palatable. What we do know is that voters also consistently talk about the economy. And so I just, I think that people who are pointing out wokeness as the problem are finding a wedge and are distracting us from the real issue, which is that we don't have a very clear narrative that can speak to a multiracial, multigenerational coalition. And we know that the economy is the top concern. We've seen that in a lot of the polling that we have done. You can see it in most of the polling that's done by anybody. It will constantly be listed at jobs, economy, wages, in focus groups i've listened to i've heard people talk about this and then you know we looked at the 2020 congressional ad we did an analysis of 2020 congressional ads run on tv and the top word that was funded was pre-existing condition so i don't think that the problem is wokeness i don't think that the problem is defund the police i think the problem is that it's a lack of something else
0: i see because nature abhors a vacuum and so To some degree the democratic message by not settling on a strong consistent message it's like what did what did jack kemp the 1996 republican vice presidential nominee famously say weakness is provocative and to some degree you know we're we're sort of inviting the media and republicans and various skullduggarous factions to come in and say well you know what their message is it's that they're woke and they're coming to kill you mm-hmm.
1: and then we react instead of saying no we're going to take a pause and we're going to collect ourselves and we're going to create this visionary statement that describes exactly what we are for and we need to take that pause and we need to figure that out
0: i want to ask you about one slice of the electorate that you called out in your report and that i think is it's sort of fascinating and I'm not sure what to read into it. It's Asian American Pacific Island voters who it's another group. First of all, there's some discussion, actually John Oliver has been kind of leading this discussion. Is this a group? Is this really one contiguous group? Can we think of them as one group or is it a collection of different groups with very different characteristics and we're sort of doing them a disservice by glomming them together? That's one question. The other question is, they are trending also in a negative direction, and they are a growing segment of the electorate. They're an important segment of the electorate. What do you think is going on there? What are the dynamics, and what should Democrats be doing better?
1: Yeah, I agree that they are a collection of, organ- of subgroups and that we need to be a lot more precise in our language and in our targeting and in our program to API voters. And that said, one of the biggest challenges is data in the on, on, on the campaign side. One of the biggest challenges is data because you know, like in Nevada, for example, uh, there's a m- massive Filipino community and a lot of folks get tagged as being Hispanic when really they're API. And so you know there's like little things like that that's that aren't actually little. And have ramifications that are largely unseen, except for those who, except for by those who are on the campaign trail, but, I do think that that's one specific concrete thing we can do so that we're actually talking to API voters is to identify them. But then another thing that we really need to do is that often API organizations or program is C3 and it's nonpartisan, And it's assumed that if we talk to you because you are a voter of color, you're going to turn, like you will turn out and then you will turn out for us. And that's just simply not true. And I think that that means that on the investment side, we need to be putting like partisan dollars into into these programs so that we can talk to them about why they should be voting along with progressive or for progressive candidates and what that means and how it actually does line up and align with their values in a culturally competent manner that done by like trusted messengers who are in those communities. But I, I really think that one of the biggest problems that we do is that we silo them into nonpartisan programming and we and
0: we really shouldn't be doing well and to, to sort of continue on this theme and and maybe this will be a segment of the conversation where you know i sort of lay out i don't know if devil's advocate is right but at least questions people might have about the messaging and strategic guidance that one can read in your report i wonder if if democrats perhaps do themselves a disservice by thinking in terms of racial groups at all. I know that's kind of a provocative way to put it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I know I'm leaning in here. I'm leading into to a provocative angle. But one of the one of the emerging findings in the data is that conservatives of all races are voting more and more like conservatives, like white conservatives rather than with any affinity with with an ethnic group. And that often we, we mistake our messaging and we make assumptions about people that are not warranted based on kind of crude and overly broad characterizations of their racial or ethnic background. You were saying earlier that we need a more sophisticated understanding of how to talk about class and the integration of class and race. Would Democrats be better served to focus on more of, as you say, since we know economic messaging is so central to success, would Democrats be better served to pay way less attention to race and pay a lot more attention to economic arguments and class?
1: I think what we have found is that it's when the two come together, that's when you truly hit that's, when, that's, that's a sweet spot. It's, it's when you're able to talk to people as a fuller person. And I, I, I think that we do need to talk about race because it is a, an issue in the United States. And like you mentioned, voters of color are a massive part of the Democratic base. And so to not talk about race and to ignore it would be a disservice to the people who make up the Democratic Party. And I think we could talk about class more. We could talk about economics more. We could talk about how the two are intertwined and how we are stronger when we're together and talk about how social safety nets can actually provide benefits. And I think that that then is how you start to draw the vision of what the the Democratic Party stands for.
0: Well, and here's the other again, maybe it's not quite right to call it devil's advocate argument, but, you know, for a long time, look, there are some things that when you hear them, they just sound a little ominous. Your significant other sends you a text, we need to talk. That sounds kind of ominous. Your doctor sends you a message through the patient portal, your test results are in. That sounds kind of ominous. For a long time, I, I think it's been kind of a joke in political consultant circles, that if a campaign starts to say, you know how we're gonna win? We're gonna get young voters. We're gonna get new voters. We're gonna draw them into the process. It's like, ah, that sounds ominous because it's rarely a pathway to success. There's a reason that those folks don't show up so often is that they're not super motivated to vote and they're super hard to get on board. But that being said, Part of your analysis says, look, that's where the opportunity is for Democrats. It's these high potential, they're not quite drawn into the process yet type voters. So why is that traditional ominous feeling wrong and this guidance to focus on this segment right?
1: So let me actually add one thing to my last statement, and that's, we also found Tori Gavito, our founder, one of our founders and president of Way to Win and Ian Haney-Lopez, who's a professor and also the author of Dog Whistle Politics, and he's one of the co-founders of Race Class Narrative Framework. They, wrote, they, they did a project last year and they found that there was a correlation between when Hispanic voters self-identified closer to white they tended to be more conservative. When they self identified as a voter, or as a person of color, they tended to be more progressive. And so I think that's another distingu- distinguishing thing that we need to think about and, and, and why race is important, because it is something that people do think about and it does have consequences of then your political ideologies. And I would be remiss to say that. Even though black women might have shifted two points away from Democrats, they're still in the 90 percentile.
0: Oh, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, You know,
1: so I I think that
0: the backbone of the Democratic Party.
1: Right. And so I just I just wanted to name that, name those two things. And I think that it's a good segue to talking about why high potential voters are the future. And it's because I think it's that return on investment that I was speaking about earlier. It's that durability. It's I know that. I have been that consultant who laughed at somebody because they were so Pollyanna that they wanted to register all the voters and I laughed because I knew that our budget was going to be $40,000 for that race and that to register voters it is incredibly expensive. And so, you know, that I think that's often why campaign managers have this tendency to go to, to say we have X amount of money and we have to get out Y number of voters. And so we're going to concentrate on the ones that we know are going to vote. And so they're not they it's it's this scarcity mindset that enables us to continue to prioritize people who do vote. And that's one of the reasons that I came to Way to Win because I knew that it was going to be new money that was going to pour into year-round organizations that were going to be doing that hard work of actually talking and developing relationships with voters who aren't voters yet or who aren't consistent voters yet. And so it's less about, I, I, I understand where they are coming from because they have a budget and it's expensive. And I also think it's, right to prioritize high potential voters because then if you if you get them to come out once and then twice and then three times then you have you're 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 shifting the makeup of what those high turnout voters look like like right we don't have to take what we've been given we can change the makeup of the electorate
0: Right. We don't have to just assume that that's the way it's always going to be. You know, you're making a really important distinction that I, I just want to I, I want to focus on for a second for our listeners, because this is one of the realities, kind of a behind-the-scenes reality of managing a campaign that I think people don't appreciate. You really are under budget duress. The budget drives everything. Mm-hmm. One of the smartest political consultants I ever worked with said, you know, we we won an unlikely congressional campaign. And he said, you know, Matt, you guys won this campaign on the spreadsheet six months ago mm-hmm. because it was all about intelligent deployment of your very, very limited resources, which is kind of what makes getting into campaigns sort of fun, but it is a triage job. It is a question of, look, I've got this amount of money and it's almost on a per dollar basis. How can I get to my vote goal? What's, mm-hmm. the, what's the fastest route to get there? What I really think is important about what you just said is the Democratic Party is not lacking for campaign money. Collectively, campaigns and organizations spent $14 billion on the 2020 election. There's plenty of money out there for Democrats. What you guys are doing as an ongoing, permanent, outside organization is exactly what you should be doing. Campaigns shouldn't be doing this type of work. You guys should be doing this type of work to change the shape of the electorate on an ongoing Basis, and so what I'm reading into that is that part of your advice is strategic advice for the Democratic Party, not necessarily for individual campaigns. They've got to do what they've got to do. The party has to think strategically in the terms that you've laid out.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Well, great. I, I, you, you have now totally convinced the inner devil's advocate in me. Congratulations. I'm super impressed. Look, speaking of impressive aspects of of, of things that you bring to the table i do want to talk about texas you have a rich texas background and look texas is like lucy and the football that's another dated reference because peanuts hasn't been published for 20 years but look if you grew up reading any comics you read peanuts i don't care and everyone knows lucy and the football Mm -hmm. every year every cycle every race it's like this time maybe beto no, it's not happening. It hasn't happened in a political generation. Not since I was in college have we seen a Democratic governor of Texas, and yet, by the way, Republicans still manage to complain somehow about, oh, the election administration needs to be audited because, you know, we've controlled every single lever of power there for 25 years. Something must be wrong. Okay, someone explain that to me. Regardless, political expert on Texas, do Democrats have a chance, whether it's I don't know, Matthew Dowd running down ballot, Matthew McConaughey, Beto O'Rourke. Is there any hope in Texas or should we just finally like admit defeat?
1: I would argue that we might have been holding the football up, but Charlie has not been coming to kick. Like I have been working in Texas politics for over a decade. And for the first, I mean, the, the first time that I really saw national investment in Texas was 2018. I remember I, there was, I, I, I remember whenever there was our local, one of our union directors, what he, he, he usually gets exported to another state. Like he would usually be pulled into Ohio or he would be taken to Florida for the last, you know, three months. And I remember in 2018, he was, he was ordered to stay in Texas. And I thought that was such a massive sign. And I was like, Oh, other people are finally starting to recognize our potential and like they're, they're going to start investing. And lo and behold, it's true. And people are starting to invest and you're right, but you know, there hasn't been a democratic one statewide since, you know, for a generation. I have a poster of Ann Richards on my wall and-
0: you know Who so doesn't I, love Ann Richards? Ann Richards <laughs> is an icon in America.
1: I know, yeah, so, you know, it's a constant reminder that we can get back there this did happen in my lifetime and we can do it again and i i know because i've run the numbers and i've worked with organizations in the state we have the infrastructure and we have the the knowledge we have the people it's a matter of money it's a matter of getting money into the right hands so that those people who have been here can meet the scale that's required in order to actually talk to the number of voters who deserve to be talked to. Like Texans just haven't been talked to, that, that's the issue. We've had to pick and choose which counties we could afford to be in and to say, okay, well, we're gonna flip Harris County. And luckily, you know, like you were saying, we had this, like, like you were saying, we won the spreadsheet, we won six months ago with the spreadsheet. And I think that we won any statewide, in 2012, whenever organizations started to come together and say, okay, what is our 10 year plan? And now we're, we're seeing the fruits of that labor.
0: Would you rather today, boy, this is like, you ever play the game. Would you rather this? It's usually, it's usually terrible. The outcomes are (laughs) terrible, but would you rather have Beto O'Rourke or Matthew McConaughey at the top of your ticket in Texas? I'm not going to hold you to this, (laughs) but you know, if you were handicapping it,
1: I think Beto, I think Beto. I think that he would know how, I think that his campaign could be really transformative. And I think he could really run a campaign that is integrated in a legally compliant manner with these organizations that are there year round. And I think it could really be people powered. I think and it would be positive. And I think he would paint a vision. I think it would be really helpful. Matthew McConaughey, I just, I don't know like other than all right, all right, all right. What would, what would his slogan be?
0: <laughs> I, I mean, don't mess with abs. I don't know. I mean, he's a good looking dude. He, he seems pretty laid back. He plays the bongo drums. I don't know. I don't really know what appeals to American voters anymore. We had Donald Trump as president for four years. Right. So I I think most of us who have been in campaigns for, for, you know, some time in our past career kind of threw up our hands in agony at that moment. I I I don't know. I don't know. One final question, and I'll I'll keep it Texas related. Do you think that the Texas abortion law is going to lead to significant blowback in the state that will help Democrats or not? Is is it is it going to be kind of a political non-event? Because it is pretty out there.
1: I sure hope so. And I'm working on it. And I know that there's a lot of folks who are very smart who are working on it. I know that people that in my family i grew up irish catholic in sugarland outside of outside of houston and people in my family are against this bill like i think that and 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 they're not pro-choice i think that this is over the line and republicans have to be held accountable and i think that texans want to do that
0: well I, you know, as, as the saying goes from from your lips to God's ears, I hope you're right. I hope that is true. I hope it plays out that way. We are going to have to wrap this up. As much fun as I'm having, you know, I, like I said at the top of the show, it's actually fun to think in a sort of positive way about opportunity. And everything that I hear you saying and your organization saying in this report is there's opportunity. Let's not just be down in the mouth about as you were saying a moment ago, like the the shape of the electorate and our fate is somehow handed to us. We can actually take charge of it if we're smart, if we're strategic. And I, I I am more than a little convinced. So Colleen Loper, thank you so much for running through all of this for us. And I hope people will check out the report and we'll have you back.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt.